a little sliver of land about the size of Delaware, a sliver of people compared to the 7.6 billion people across the planet, and they are the focus of the news virtually every single day. Welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy, Senior Pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. We're in chapter 21 of the Revelation, looking at the New Jerusalem, a city we discover in God's Word that will come down from heaven and will be placed on earth, replacing the areas that have been destroyed and ravaged by the plagues and other catastrophes previously described in the various judgments. As we pick up, Dr. Brogy counters critics that say that God is done with the Jewish people. And he uses as part of his supporting argument the comments made by Jesus as he was commenting about the temple on the Wednesday before he was crucified. Let's rejoin him as he reads that passage from Luke 21, verse 24. And they will fall, the Jewish people, by the edge of the sword and will be led captive, where? Into all the nations. And Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the time of the Gentiles are fulfilled. In 70 AD, a general by the name of Titus Vespucian came in, and he did exactly what Jesus prophesied. And he destroyed the temple. Not one stone was left upon another. He decimated the city. The Jews were scattered. Some were kept. By 135 AD, they're all gone. They're scattered to the nations of the world with a few handfuls left. But for the most part, they're gone scattered to the nations. That's what Moses said 1,400 years before Christ. That's what Jesus said on the Temple Mount. Now, stay with me. This is not boring if you can see what God wants you to see today. In the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 4, 2,500 years ago, Moses wrote this, I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that you will surely perish quickly from the land where you are going over the Jordan to possess it. You shall not live long on it, but will be utterly destroyed. The Lord will scatter you, where? Among the peoples, among the goyim, among the nations. And you will be left few in number among the nations where the Lord drives you. But then Moses immediately promises in the same chapter, when you are in distress and all these things have come upon you, in the latter days, if you know your Bible, you know the phrase, the latter days refer to the final time frame in human history where the Messiah comes a second time, what we call the second coming of Jesus, when he sets up his kingdom. Moses says here, in the latter days, you will return to the Lord your God and listen to his voice. And in Deuteronomy 28, he warns, it shall come about that as the Lord delighted over you to prosper you and multiply you, so the Lord will delight over you to make you perish and destroy you, and you will be torn from the land where you are entering to possess it. Moreover, the Lord will scatter you among all peoples from one end of the earth, we're not talking about Babylon or Assyria, from one end of the earth to the other end of the earth. But again, 1,400 years before Christ, 2,500 years ago, thereabouts, chapter 30, God promises, if your outcasts are at the ends of the earth, from there the Lord your God will gather you, and from there he will bring you back. The Lord your God will bring you into the land which your fathers possess, and you shall possess it, and he will prosper you and multiply you more than your fathers. 
Listen to what the prophet Ezekiel said. He lives 800 years before Jesus. For I will take you from the nations. That's where they've been scattered. Remember, God said, I'll scatter you. I'll make the land desolate. When I was in Israel in September, one of the people in the church said, Pastor Carl, I don't mean to be rude, but this sure doesn't look like the land of flowing with milk and honey. It looks pretty desolate. That's what God said would happen. It was left desolate. And through just ignoring the cultivation of the land, some parts of Israel turned into a swamp. And so the whole northern Galilean region, and this brother in the back who was raised there, Dan can tell you, or in other parts, it just became like a, a rock desert. God brought a judgment on the land. So when you see Moses and sending the spies in and they come in with all this magnificent fruit that's a picture of the land, it's like, what happened? God judged the land. But God said in the end of time, behold, I will take the sons of Israel from among the nations where they have gone, and I will gather them from every side and bring them into their own land. Now listen, Ezekiel 38, next chapter. After many days you will be summoned when in the latter years you will come into the land that is restored from the sword whose inhabitants have been gathered from many nations. I don't know if you know this, but this is a remarkable moment that we are living at in human history. There's never been a nation in all of recorded history, and there's only 6,000 years of recorded history where nations ceased to exist, and then they became a nation again. But God said of his Jewish people, because of your disobedience, because of your unbelief, and the final nail in the coffin was when they as a nation formally rejected Jesus as the Savior, he spread them to the nations of the world. It was a judgment of God. But God said at the end of time, And you read what Moses writes, you read what Ezekiel writes, and he's describing that time frame when the Messiah, it has to refer to his second coming, will rule and reign on the earth. It's never happened. Jesus never had the governments of this world on his shoulders, but he will at his second coming. He will gather the people from across the planet, and he will bring them back into the land. And so the Zionist movement began primarily in the 1890s. There were 25,000 Jewish people in Israel the first time we have demographics in 1890. When they become a nation on May the 14th, 1948, and the prophet Isaiah said they'll become a nation in one day, they had 600,000 Jews living in Israel. When I started the Revelation series two plus years ago, they had 6.2 million Jews living there. This morning, they have 6.8 million Jews, and most would acknowledge there's only about 12.5 million Jews in the whole planet. A little sliver of land about the size of Delaware, a sliver of people compared to the 7.6 billion people across the planet, and they are the focus of the news virtually every single day. Why? Because God is fulfilling prophecy He is keeping his promise because he cannot lie. We are seeing something happening that God would say, said would happen at the very end of time. And if these prophecies are coming true in our life, how soon might it be before we stand face to face with the Lord Jesus Christ? 
Now, unlike Harold Camping and others like him, I do not know when Jesus will precisely return because no one knows the day or the hour. But when we see prophecy relating to the second coming being fulfilled in our day, we know the rapture that is seven plus years before that is all that much closer. Listen, replacement theology cannot give God glory for what he did when in one day he made Israel a nation. You go to Israel today, there are all kinds of languages in addition to Hebrew that are spoken. There are Jews that are speaking over a hundred languages in that piece of land because God is bringing the Jewish people from across the planet back into the land of Israel. And replacement of theology cannot give God the praise for what he's done. When you ask them, well, who's responsible for what's happening? They would say, well, not God. And they were repudiating one of the greatest proofs that God recorded in Holy Scripture that he is very much involved in that nation. This should be a wake-up call to the church because remember, at the end of time, the church will be lethargic. It will be lukewarm, the Bible teaches. And you don't want to become a part of that lukewarm generation. Replacement theology is very dangerous because, among other things, it feeds the spirit of anti-Semitism. Not by choice. I'm not saying that my Reformed brothers who teach replacement theology are anti-Semites because they're not. The love of Christ has been poured out in their heart. And they love people, but they see nothing unique for Israel. And because of a lack of teaching about God's future for Israel, they've created a vacuum for the anti-Semite to walk in. This is true in all realms of theology. For instance, if a pastor only preaches on the love of God and he fails to preach on the wrath of God and a place called hell then he has created a distorted view of God. Or if a pastor, say, refuses to teach on the gender distinctions of our day since the creation of Adam and Eve, I made them male and female. And it just seems like every week something new is coming down the pike. And so one of the major cereal companies just made for us transgender LBGTQ cereal. Wonderful. I won't buy from them anymore if I don't have to. Last week, the Coca-Cola company created a commercial where they showed three mothers helping their children to transgender themselves. Sick. But you see, if you refuse to teach what God says, then you create a vacuum and perversion enters into the land. And God gave a great warning when he made this covenant with Abraham, when he established this nation. He said, I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you of me, I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. Every Christian today is blessed because of the Jewish people. We have a Jewish book. Every author of your Bible is Jewish, and your Savior is Jewish. We are blessed because of the Jewish people. And by default, when replacement theology does not teach what God says about the Jewish people, it opens the door for the anti-Semite to walk right through. And I want to tell you, people who are anti-Semites are people who do not know the living God. God will do what he said. I will curse those who curse you. 
The very first anti-Semite we find in Scripture was the Pharaoh who did not know Joseph. And so under a means of population control, he killed all the little Jewish baby boys. And then God brought the destroyer through the land, and he killed the firstborn in every house. And he ended up drowning Pharaoh and his entire army. And they came under the Abrahamic curse as they became fish food there in the Red Sea. I will curse those who curse you. Where are all the Canaanite people who persecuted the Jews? They're gone. Not a single one of their nations exists today. Where is Haman and his sons who sought to destroy the Jewish people? They were all hung on the gallows. Why? Because I will curse those who curse you. Where is the Persian Empire? Where is the Babylonian Empire? Where is the Ottoman Empire? Where is Adolf Hitler? Where is his Nazi Empire? They are all gone. Why? Because I will curse those who curse you. But where is Israel? They are on a tiny slice of land, and they were powerful, they prosper, and they were very much alive. And we need to shout that in defiance of replacement theology that Israel lives. We need to shout it to all the anti-Semites living in Jerusalem this morning that Israel lives. We need to shout it from the housetops to those in the United Nations who year after year, month after month, write laws, so to speak, against Israel that Israel lives. We need to shout it to the Iranian government who says they want to drive the little Satan into the sea and to destroy them that Israel lives. We need to shout it to the anti-Semite movements that are growing on the college campuses of America, and most Americans are totally asleep to it, that Israel lives. We need to shout it to the Second Vatican Council, who said the Roman church has replaced Israel, that God is done with the Jew, that Israel lives. We need to shout it to the boycott, divest, and sanction movement, that Israel lives. We need to shout it in the halls of Congress that Israel lives. We need to tell our Reformed brothers that Israel lives, and we need to shout it in this auditorium today, Israel lives. Israel lives. And God wanted to fix that thought forever in your mind. Here in verse 14, and the wall of the city had 12 foundation stones, and on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. Isn't that interesting? On the gates are the 12 sons, and now here on the 12 foundation stones are the 12 apostles. And it's reminding us that the promises that came through Israel were he put their names on the gate and were ultimately fulfilled through the ministry of the apostles. He will herald throughout all of eternity. Now, some think, by the way, they, I know someone will ask me before I'm done, who's the 12th apostle since Judas died? And that's a good question. And let me just say, I can absolutely tell you with full, absolute authority that it's not me, okay? <laughs> well, who is it? Some would say, well, it must be the Apostle Paul. Well, it's not Paul. Others would say, well, it has to be Matthias who replaced Judas. 
And others would say, we'll never know until we get to heaven. We do know. And God made it clear. Hold your finger here and turn to the book of Acts. The book of Acts chapter 1. Acts are right after Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And it covers, if you remember, the first 30 years of church history. The four Gospels really funnel into Acts chapter 1. And I say that because Matthew concludes with the resurrection. And the Gospel of Mark, if you remember, ends with the ascension. The Gospel of Luke, if you remember, ends with the promise of the Holy Spirit. And the Gospel of John ends with the promise of the second coming. And interestingly, here in Acts chapter 1, all four records are brought together right here in the book of Acts. And it serves as a bridge between the Gospels and the epistles. Look at Acts chapter 1, and let's pick it up in verse uh, 15 here. We're told, at this time, Peter stood up in the midst of the brethren. A gathering of about 120 persons was there together. And he said, and please notice carefully verses 16 and 17. Brethren, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit foretold by the mouth of David concerning Judas who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was counted among us and received his portion in this ministry. Now we must ask, why did Jesus choose Judas? Knowing that Judas would reject him uh, and become a guide to those who arrested him. Well, because God is sovereign and Jesus is sovereign and this was part of God's sovereign will. Now, God did not give uh, Judas, uh, make him like a machine where he had no free will. The evil, wicked plan that he hatched was his own. Now, remember, there's one thing that God cannot do, and that is God cannot learn. God knows everything. And so God can write centuries before it ever happened that one of the apostles of the Messiah would betray the Messiah. And Peter just told us that Judas did what he did. Why? Because the Scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit foretold by the mouth of David. You say, did he have a choice? Of course he did. Was Judas forced to betray Christ? Of course he was not. God gave him a choice, and God actually wanted Judas to be saved. But Judas chose not to be saved. Twice over in John's gospel, Jesus tells us that Judas did what he did because he was always an unbeliever. He was lost. He never received Jesus as the Lord. And Jesus loved him and could have forgiven him. But God prophesied that he would do this. He was not some puppet on a divine chessboard. He chose as an act of his own will to do what he did. Do you think God crippled him and then blamed him for limping? Of course not. He did what he did as an act of his own free will. Now, when you come to verses 18 and 19, it's clear that these two verses are not a part of Peter's sermon. They're parenthetical. You see the parentheses? Now, understand, obviously, there are no parentheses in the Greek New Testament. But as Luke writes what happened on this day... He wants to give a parenthetical note. And so the publishers are correct in putting this in a parenthesis. And by the way, I should say that what we're about to read is a favorite verse by liberal theologians who want to discount the truthfulness of the Bible along with Mormons. Let's look at it. Verse 18. Now, this man acquired a field with the price of his wickedness. And falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all his intestines gushed out. Now, this is totally consistent with what Matthew records. If Mormon missionaries show up at your door, and if they get far enough with you, 
where you're trying to convince them, hey, look, the Bible says this, the Book of Mormon says this, and they both can't be true. The Book of Mormon, for instance, says Jesus was born in Jerusalem, the Book of Alma. The Bible says he was born in Bethlehem. They both can't be right. So when push comes to shove, they'll say the Bible has been corrupted, and every Mormon missionary has been trained with four different so-called contradictions that they can point out to you in the Bible. Here's one of them. They'll say, well, Matthew said he hung himself but here in the book of Acts, it says he fell headlong and he burst open and all his intestines fell out. Well, these two accounts don't contradict each other. They complement one another. In all probability, he hung himself over a cliff. And we know the approximate place because it's recorded in Scripture where he died. And there was a great cliff right along there. And in either case, after he died, the knot either slipped or the rope broke or the branch of the tree snapped. And he fell forward his bloated body and popped open. Luke is just giving us all the juicy details. That's all. They, they don't contradict. And it became known to all who were living in Jerusalem. So that in their own language, that field was called Halkidama, meaning an Aramaic field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, let his homestead be made desolate. Let no one dwell in it. And let another man take his office. Therefore, verse 21, it is necessary that the men of the men who had accompanied us all the time, that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning with the baptism of John until the day that he was taken up from us, one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. So Peter's proposal here sheds clear light as to who could potentially fill this 12th spot. We know it has to be a person who from the beginning, from the time of John's baptism, was involved in the ministry of Christ. And in that room of 120, it appears that there are two viable options. And so they need wisdom. Which of the two do they pick? So they put forward two men, Joseph called Barsabbas, who is also called Justice and Matthias. And they prayed and said, you, Lord, know the hearts of all men. Show which one of these two you have chosen to occupy this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they drew lots for them, and the lot fell to Matthias, and he was added to the 11 apostles. Now, please note, they prayed, and that was natural. They were already in a prayer meeting. And Jesus, of course, the night before he chose his 12, he had prayed and these 11 are following Christ's pattern. They're seeking wisdom. And they draw lots. Why lots? Because the Holy Spirit had not yet been given. And so sometimes in the Old Testament, there are different means for finding the will of God. Proverbs 16.33, put that in the margin there. The lot is cast into the lap, but every decision is from the Lord. And so casting lots is never done again after Pentecost. Why? Because now we have the Spirit of God to direct us. Not in the way Beth Moore and Stephen Furtick and some of these other crazies are saying, you know, God spoke to me and I got a direct revelation. You know, Beth Moore, I listen to her sometimes, it's like she's getting these text messages from heaven. What else did he say? Go out and make a snowman with me, Beth. And, you know, it's just crazy stuff. That's the kind of stuff cults do. But you see, the church is so ignorant and so biblically illiterate they buy into that foolishness, and we will see the warning in Scripture before we're done with this book of adding or subtracting to God's Word. Now, God may speak to you, but it will always be in conjunction with this book, and you cannot add or subtract to this book. It is a completed revelation, period. 
Now, he's given you the Holy Spirit, where sometimes you're not sure about a particular issue because God hasn't maybe given, should I go move to Atlanta or should I move to Chicago? And you move in one direction, and there's kind of a check in your spirit. This doesn't quite feel comfortable. Well, the Scripture says in Colossians 3, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. And the word rule there refers to an umpire, to a referee who makes a decision. And sometimes our umpire, God, the Holy Spirit, who will never add to His Word, never subtract to His Word, but He'll put just a little check in your spirit that maybe you shouldn't move in this direction. Well, here's an occasion. They're drawing lots. The lot falls to Matthias. So you want to know back here in Revelation who's on that 12th stone? It's this man named Matthias. The lot is cast into the lap, but every decision comes from the Lord. And why did they need a 12th apostle? We've already studied it. I'm almost done. Matthew 19, 28, Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say to you that you who have followed me in the regeneration, we saw that's the Messiah's reign on the earth, in the regeneration, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you shall sit upon 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes. Somehow, during the millennial reign of Messiah, these 12 men are going to have some special role in dealing with the Jewish people. Not to judge sin, that's a unique privilege given to God alone, but somehow they are going to rule and reign with Christ over the 12 tribes of the nation of Israel for their faithfulness. Now, I'm almost done. Go back to Revelation, verse 12. Here's this city, this eternal capital. It had a great and high wall, 12 gates. At the gates, 12 angels. The names were written on them, who of the 12 sons of the tribes of Israel. Verse 13, there were gates in the east, north, south, west. Verse 14, and the wall of the city had 12 foundation stones, and on all those 12 stones were names the 12 apostles. Now, I spent a lot of time on that, but it's going to become critical to our next message in the Revelation. God is faithful. God keeps His Word. He keeps every promise He has ever made. He's not done with Israel. He's loved them with an everlasting love, and as He used that nation to bring about the first coming, He will use that nation to culminate human history as you and I know it. And those 12 tribes and those 12 apostles will be memorialized on the gates and the foundation stones. And if you die of a heart attack before the day is over and you go to heaven, you will see their names written there. Now, this is a city that God wants you to go to. Do you have assurance that this is your home? You say, I hope so. I think so. Maybe so. You won't be able to scale the wall and just walk in. If your name is not recorded in the Lamb's Book of Life, you'll never get in. And God wants you to go, but He has only one way to send you there, and it's through Jesus, who's the way, the truth, and the life, and no one can come to the Father but through Him. Let's bow in prayer. Father, thank You that if someone will confess You, You will confess them. But Your Word is so clear, if they deny You, You will deny them. Thank you that when we receive the Lord Jesus, you receive us with open arms. Help someone today who's unsure to know that they can achieve nothing to change their status. Help someone today, Father, to believe, to call upon Christ in faith. 
But for those of us who have done that, help us to have our eyes wide open. Help us not to be lethargic in the days that we live in, days like Noah and days like Lot, days of immorality and days of perversion. Help us to warn men and women and boys and girls this week of their need to come to Jesus, and we ask it in his name. Amen. To listen again to today's message from Revelation 21, part two of When Heaven Comes to Earth, use the Search the Scriptures app for smartphones and tablets, or visit us online at searchthescriptures.org. You can also order a CD or DVD copy by calling 877-787-7478 and requesting program REV64. Join us again tomorrow as we begin part three of our three-part series looking at heaven as we search the scriptures.